will be in Philippians chapter 3. So Morgan talked quite a bit last week about uh, where our confidence is. Our confidence is not in what we are able to do. Our confidence instead is in what Christ has done. Talked about justification by faith. Uh, justification, again, is the act whereby God declares a sinner righteous. That's justification. That is not dependent upon what we do or what we are capable of doing, but upon what God has already done. Ephesians chapter 1 is dependent upon the election of Father, the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Our justification does not come from something that we are capable of. Thankfully, because we'd all be in a bad way. So think about confidence. Paul's going to give a little picture here of what gives him or what he could have had confidence in. We're going to walk through that a little bit. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. He says, I rejoice in Christ Jesus, have no confidence in the flesh, though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. You thought you were good? Man, I take the cake. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So Paul gives his report card here, right? He gives his scorecard of what he has to stand up to if it were concerning his own actions to get him righteousness. And it's a pretty good scorecard. So he says he was circumcised the eighth day. That's the first thing he says. Now, the last thing he says is he was blameless. Now, when he says he's blameless, that doesn't mean that he thought that he was sinless as a Jew. What it means is his external obedience to the Mosaic law was perfect. It was always in accordance with what he was supposed to do. And that started when he gets circumcised. It started in an infant, right? Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham, says, Abraham, eight days Get your kids circumcised, circumcise your sons. So right from the beginning in his infancy, Paul was kept in perfect accord with the Mosaic law. His parents would have done that for him when he was a kid. When he grew up and he became an adult, he would have kept himself in perfect accord with that. It's kind of like somebody, if you know anybody, I don't know anybody who's ever done this, but if you knew somebody who had never run a stop sign, right, who had never taken a pen or some paper or something from work that they weren't supposed to take, who had never put up a fence or removed some plants from their yard without written HOA approval, right? <laughs> God forbid you do that. <clears throat> Someone who had never not met the requirements of whatever regulations were over top of them. That's what Paul was. He's like a goody two-shoes. He does everything exactly right. But he's more than just a goody two-shoes. He says, I'm from the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So in the beginning of the church, church obviously started in Jerusalem with the, with, with the Jews. Um, first few decades of church, if you were a Gentile, you were sort of considered like a second-class citizen. Well, yeah, Jesus loves you, but he loves you a little bit less than he loves me. That's kind of the thought. Paul didn't think that necessarily, but that was kind of the thought. If you were a Jew, you were considered more important, right? He says, I'm a Jew, right? I have an ethnic, I have the ethnic background to back me up, but not just a Jew. I'm also from the tribe of Benjamin. When you think about Benjamin, go back to Genesis. Rachel is Jacob's favorite wife. Benjamin is her son. He's one of Jacob's favorite sons. 
Um, Benjamin, their territory, bordered on Jerusalem, the capital of the the nation, right? The first king, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. When the nation split and you ended up having Israel in the north and Judah in the south, Israel is in rejection of the son of David who God had put over over Israel, right? The northern Israel is rejecting over them. Benjamin stays in the south and stays under the Davidic king. Benjamin was not just one of the tribes of Israel, it was one of the better tribes of Israel, he would have said. So you think about somebody who maybe plays in the NFL, right? Oh, you're in the NFL? Who'd you play for? Oh, well, I played for the Dallas Cowboys in the mid-90s. I played for the 49ers in the late 80s. I played for the Patriots like every year since then. <laughs> I wasn't just in the league. I was on the Super Bowl champion teams. I was on the dynasty teams. Paul says, I'm not just a Jew. Man, I'm a Super Bowl champion Jew. He's a goody two-shoes. He's a Super Bowl champ. He says, concerning the law, he's a Pharisee. Now, the Old Testament law, there's like 613 different laws they're supposed to be listening to. That's what he was in perfect accordance with his entire life. If you were a Pharisee, you added a bunch of stuff on top of that. You fasted twice a week. You tithed on different things. You wore extra long tassels. You made prayers out in public. You did all this stuff on top of what you had to do. Paul did all of that stuff as well. It's kind of like a valedictorian who not only has a 4.0, they have like a 6.0 GPA or a 7.0 GPA because they've taken honors classes and all these extra community service hours, whatever it is that makes your GPA huge. I certainly don't know what that takes. (laughs) But if you did, you did all that extra stuff on top that give you this great GPA, right? So Paul's in that category. He's a goody two-shoes. He's a Super Bowl champ. He's a valedictorian. And then on top of all those things, he says... Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. His devotion to the old covenant was so strong that he was killing and throwing people in jail, anybody who he thought opposed it. I mean, his inner drive for the Old Testament was just out of this world. You think about that scorecard, that's a pretty impressive scorecard. Most of us will never come close to measuring up to that. Now, Paul looks at these things. And he says, in the next few verses you see, he considers all of these things, all of these good accomplishments of himself, he considers them a loss or rubbish. The old King James says they're dung. That's about what he thinks of all of his accomplishments. It's about as good as dung in the eyes of God to justify himself. But now we think about this, right? And we think about justification. We don't draw our confidence in our justification in our salvation through what we can do. We draw it in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But now what do we find our daily confidence in when we're walking out our lives daily, going to work, going to school, whatever it is we're doing? Do we find our confidence on a daily basis in God and in Christ? Or do we find our confidence in a daily basis on ourselves, what we are capable of? We have a lot of very capable people in this church. We've got a lot of really good businessmen. We've got a lot of folks that have done uh, excellent careers in the military. We've got a lot of students that are very athletic and very academically good. You know, We have a lot of people that have a lot of good talents, and those are good things. But do we rely upon the talents that God has given us, or do we rely upon what God is doing through us? So I want to think about a person who also would have had a lot of confidence in the flesh. And that's King Saul. He's also from Benjamin, right? King Saul, the, the scripture says, he's head and shoulders above everybody in Israel. 
He's bigger than everybody. He's probably stronger than everybody. He's probably a better fighter than pretty much everybody. As the king, one of his primary goals was to defend the nation. So being bigger and stronger and a better fighter, he probably would have had a lot of confidence in that. Not only did he have that, he came from a family that was pretty well established and pretty wealthy. He would have had some confidence in the influence his family would have had. He would have had some confidence in the resources he could have pulled from them. That would have been a source of confidence. On top of that, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin was known for having uh, militarily superior people. They're really good fighters. There's a verse in Judges chapter 5, Deborah's, Deborah's song. She's commemorating a victory. She says, behind you, O Benjamin, meaning you go first and we'll go after you. You guys do the fighting. So he would have had a lot of reason for confidence in the flesh. And unfortunately, he makes a lot of his decisions based on confidence in the flesh and not based upon what God is telling him to do. And that ends up being not very good for him. There's a, if you read through the story about him, there's a, a part where he's getting ready to lead in battle against the Philistines. Philistines have taken some land and he's trying to go chase them off. And they're going to do a sacrifice before the battle, you know, get the favor of God on the battle, all that kind of stuff. The problem is God had already spoken in his word, he said, listen, sacrifices are for Levitical priests. If you're not a priest and you're not from the tribe of Levi, you don't do sacrifices. Saul was neither one of those. But he says, well, I'm the king and there's nobody here to do it. I'm just going to do it anyway, right? And he does it. And unfortunately, as soon as he's finishing doing it, Samuel, the guy who's supposed to do the sacrifice, shows up and kind of gets in his chest and says, what are you doing? You're not supposed to be doing this. And so he has a, this little argument there with Samuel. That little argument is seen by all his troops, and they all recognize, oh, man, maybe God's not on our side. Look what's going on. It says they all scatter, right? They all run off. So the Philistines retain the territory that Saul was trying to run them off of that was rightfully Israel's. It doesn't work because he's working in his own confidence. Later on, you see... God comes to Samuel, says, Samuel, go to Saul, tell him to go wipe out the Amalekites as a part of the continuing conquest that was begun by Joshua. Saul doesn't do it. He doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He ends up bringing the king back to kind of parade him and make himself look good. Look, I've got the king from another, another nation. How good am I? All right? He brings the king back. He brings a bunch of livestock back so his soldiers can, can eat them and, and do different things with them. But unfortunately, that's not what God told him to do. He's making a decision based upon his concern for his reputation, based upon his own understanding of how things. He's not listening to what God has said. And that also was going to bring some negative consequences. He was supposed to take out the Amalekites. Decades later, David and a bunch of men that are fighting with David are out at a battle, and the Amalekites come and steal their wives and their children and all their stuff, run off with them. When Saul is killed... When Saul dies on Mount Gilboa, decades later, it's an Amalekite that comes and plunders his body, takes his crown. Saul's doing things in accordance with what he thinks is best, with the things that he can have confidence in, because he's a, a big fighter, he's a king, he's all these things, but it doesn't bring him to good, it brings him to ruin. You know, you think about just walking in confidence as opposed to walking in confidence ourselves, as opposed to walking in what God, in the confidence of God and walking in confidence as a word. I mean, you know, in the song we were saying, we're, we're running the last song we sang, 
Paul said, we're running from death into life. You know, when you're going from, when you're going to the Lord, you're moving from death into life. When you're running away from what he's told us to do, we're running from life into death. It doesn't work. Let's go back to the text in verse 7. He says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So he says, Paul says, I don't have confidence in myself. Instead, my confidence comes from faith in Christ. So what does faith look like? Faith has kind of three elements to it. Uh, The first one is notitia. It's a Latin term. refers to the content of your faith. There's some facts that we're supposed to know as Christians, right? God's the creator. I'm a sinner. Jesus, the son of God, died on the cross, rose from the grave, all those things, right? There's facts that we should know as a Christian, but it can't stop at the fact level. When I got out of the military, I went to USF for about a year, and one of the classes I took there was on the New Testament. I'm not sure why I decided to take a New Testament class at a secular college, but I did. Anyway, so the professor certainly knew all the facts about Christianity. I'm sure he had studied Greek. I'm sure he'd read the Bible back and forth. He probably knew all kinds of stuff about the New Testament. But he made it very clear the first day of class he didn't believe it. He knows the facts, but he doesn't believe it. Faith can't stop in your head. The second part of what we would call saving faith is a census, right? It's a conviction that the content of your faith is true. We assent, right? We assent to that. There's a conviction there. Not only do we know what it is, we believe it in our heart. But even that, saving faith is more than that. It goes beyond that. James says, in, uh, I think it's James chapter 2, he says, Oh, you believe in God? Oh, good for you. So are the demons, and they tremble in fear. I guarantee that Satan doesn't have any doubt that there's a God. I guarantee it. Saving faith goes beyond that. The final element of saving faith is what they call fiducia. You know, as I've read this word this week, fiducia, I keep thinking, skadoosh. Anybody seen uh, Kung Fu Panda? You know, skadoosh. That's what I've been thinking in my head all week long, right? Fiducia. Fiducia is a trust. It is a trust in your conviction. So this week, earlier this week, my truck broke down. I wasn't exercising joy and peace and all those things in the Holy Spirit at that moment. I can tell you that. My truck broke down. It was actually right out here in the parking lot of West Town. And uh, I had the tow truck driver come and he comes and starts hooking up. And the place, by the time he got there, the place that I was planning on having it taken to was closed. So I said, well, we'll just take it back to my house and we'll figure it out. I'll figure it out tomorrow. So anyway, while we're getting it on, the tow truck man is looking underneath my truck, and he says, hey, I think this might be the problem. It's basically just a couple little pieces, and there was a bolt there, the bolt had come off, and the pieces weren't connected. Got to have the pieces connected, or it ain't going to work. The bolt had fallen off. He says, hey, I think that's what it is. 
I think that's it. I don't think you need to take it to the mechanic. So I had it towed back to my house. I got home. I got my phone out and took some pictures of it, right? Took some pictures of what, what the problem was. Drove up to Advanced Auto Parts and talked to the guys up there. Got the little bolt that I thought would work. Brought it back home, put it on. Praise the Lord, it works. I didn't have to take it to the mechanic shop. But what, what happened there? Because I believed that what the man said was true, it resulted in an action. The guy said, hey, I think this is the problem. There's the content, right? I believe it's it, right? I think the man's telling the truth. I'm convicted that it's true. Because I'm convicted of the truth of it, it made me go up and spend some money and spend some effort in getting it fixed. That's what saving faith looks like. It looks like not just the facts, not just a conviction that those facts are true, but carrying it out, walking it out in a daily fashion. That's what saving faith looks like. And it's not the obedience or the trust of walking it out that brings us salvation. That's accomplished by Christ. But if we have saving faith, that's how it manifests itself. You know, we used Saul as a good picture of what it doesn't, what we shouldn't be doing, what we shouldn't be doing, having confidence in ourselves. Another picture of what we should be doing is David. You think about David. David faces Goliath. Goliath's this nine and a half foot tall guy. He's been fighting wars for decades, probably. David's a skinny teenager, never been in a battle from a working on your confidence of yourself kind of, kind of thing, he certainly shouldn't have gotten that battle. But he's not confident in what he's capable of. Instead, he's confident in God. He knows that God had said, hey, this land is your land, right? Israel, it's for Israel. You're supposed to be running the Philistines and the Canaanites and Jebusites and all these other ites, right? You're supposed to be running them off. That's what I've called you to do, right? So he trusts not in what he's capable of. He trusts instead of what God is capable of and what happens. Obviously, he kills Goliath. Time goes by. Saul ends up not liking him. So Saul chases him. He wants to kill him because he knows that David's going to be the next king. So Saul's on the hunt for him for, for almost a decade. Twice in that time, David has the opportunity to kill Saul two times. Saul's, one time Saul's essentially going to the bathroom. Another time he's sleeping. David's got a bunch of men around him. If he wanted to go in there, if he wanted to have confidence in what he was capable of doing, he could have easily done it. Neither time does he do it? He says, no, I'm not going to do it, right? It's not for me to do that. God said he's going to make me the king, so I'm going to wait, and he's going to make me the king. And sure enough, David becomes the king. He's walking in confidence, not in what he's capable of, but instead of what God is capable of. So what does that look like for us on a day-to-day basis? What does it look like to walk in confidence of God? Well, so we have those concepts, obviously the big picture, our confidence is in him for salvation, but our confidence also needs to be in him for just our daily stepping out. So what is it that we're struggling with, right? Maybe you're struggling with finances, right? And you think, well, if I just work a little bit harder, if I just get up earlier and go to work a little bit earlier, if I just stay at work a little bit later and uh, work later and, you know, work later, I'll make more money. If I just do a little more things in my business, my money will be okay. Well, instead of trusting in what you're capable of doing, instead maybe trust in what God has said to do about that, that kind of thing. You know, Peter says, Peter says, we've been given everything we need to know uh, concerning godliness and walking, walking with the Lord. Everything we need is in here, right? If you're having a trouble with finances, maybe you go and look. What's the content? The content of your daily faith in finances. Well, go look up some things in the Bible about money, right? Go look up Malachi chapter 3. There's actually a few things in a, in a chapter 4 of Philippians that talks about it. Hey, I'm going to 
give what I have to the Lord, right? I'm going to give everything I have as God's anyway. I'm going to give it to him. And he says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm not going to make you, I'm not saying prosperity stuff. You're going to be rich and all that. But he says, hey, give to, give to God's people, right? Make that the first offering of yourself, right? And I will take care of the rest of your needs. Maybe that's what we're struggling with. Maybe we're struggling with your marriage. Maybe your marriage isn't the way it should be, right? Okay, well, what's the content? Go to the scripture and find out what the scripture says about marriage. Go to Genesis chapter 2 or Matthew 19 or uh, Colossians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 5. There's a ton of stuff in there about how you're supposed to treat your spouse. Well, you read it. You know the content. You have a conviction that is true. Hopefully, you do have a conviction that is true. We believe the Bible is God's word. It's inspired by him. All scripture is God-breathed and, and useful for correcting and rebuking and encouraging, right? Everything in here is from God. And you know, if you're struggling with conviction that God's word is true, come talk to me. I swear there's a ton of evidence that this is true, right? Come ask me sometime. I will probably give you way more than you want to know about why I think this is God's word. So if you're struggling with that area, seriously, come find me. So you read what it says maybe about marriage, right? Okay, I know the facts, what it says about marriage. I'm convicted that it's true. Well, let's walk it out. Let's walk out what God says about marriage. Maybe it's about work, right? Maybe you got a boss that's a jerk, and you read the scripture that says, well, you know, servants, serve your masters as unto the Lord, right? Don't serve your boss for his, for his good. You're serving your boss as a, as a worship to Jesus Christ, right? Maybe you're a boss, and you got a bunch of people underneath you that are jerks. You say, man, I'm tired of these people. They never do what they're supposed to. Well, treat them fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven, right? I mean, anything, any situation you come into, maybe it's choosing a college, maybe it's working on uh, something on, on sports. There's all kinds of different things. Anything that you're having a problem with, there's something in scripture that can speak to that. So we know it, right? We find out what it is. We have a conviction that is true and we walk in it. Praise God. Our confidence should not be in what we are capable of doing, but instead in what he can do. And he works through his word. All right, let's go back to the text. Verse 10. The righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know him. You know, if you read... John chapter 17, Jesus says, This is eternal life, to know the Father and he who the Father has sent, which is Jesus Christ, right? That's eternal life. That's the essence of eternal life. So if you know Jesus, if you have a relationship with Jesus right now, we are actively living eternal life right now. It's not something we get when we die or when Jesus comes back, right? It's something we have. We possess it at this very moment. That eternal relationship between us and Christ. We already have it. He says, I want to know him. I want to have that relationship. And I want to have the power. I also want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know that relationship now, which gives me affirmation and gives me assurance of the power of the hope that it is to come. So three times in this last couple of months, I've gone to uh, the funeral of a coworker. Two of them were 
non-believers. And they were not very encouraging being there. Morgan said last week, he said, Christians should have a noticeable lack of panic. Christians should have a noticeable lack. We're not, we don't panic because we know Jesus, right? People notice that. Oh, my goodness. Well, I would say, unbelievers, there's a noticeable lack of hope. You know, these, you know one, uh, one was a funeral one. I just went to the, to the family. Uh, it was a son who had committed suicide. It was, it was not an encouraging situation at all. And you come out of that and you're like, man, this is just depressing. This is just, it was just beating me up, just kind of being there talking to these folks. And I can't even imagine uh, the depths that they were at. Just such a lack of a hope because there is no hope if you're outside of Christ. There isn't any. But the third one I got to go to was a Christian. And this was just last week. And the person who died, it was a co-worker's sister. Uh, she was a Christian. The co-worker was a, was a Christian. Uh, it was at a church. I mean, the church family was there. The family were all Christians. It was really, it was really a really encouraging uh, moment. It was this little country church out in Wildwood, Florida, uh, the Ebenezer AME Church out in Wildwood, a little country church. You get up there and people are, they're like cooking. They got plates of barbecue and stuff they're giving out. Uh, everybody was in a good mood. Everybody was smiling. Uh, it was just really such an encouraging moment for me. I, was, I wasn't there long. I made, you know, 30 minutes or an hour just talking to family and things. But it was just so encouraging to see their joy in that situation. Like, oh yeah, she's all right. She's with Jesus. She's better than we are now. That was the attitude going on there. And I'm like, now. What a, what, a, what a contrast between seeing somebody who doesn't have Jesus and by extension has no hope and somebody who does have Jesus and by extension has all kind of hope, has ultimate hope. And what does that hope do? I mean, you know, Philippians, we're talking about joy, right? What does that hope do? This hope for these people who knew that their sister had just gone home to be with heaven, they had joy. They were overflowing with joy, really, in this situation. I mean, I'm not saying they weren't grieving at some level. Of course they were. Grieving's a good thing to do when you're in that situation. It's natural. But it does, we don't grieve, Paul says, you know, he says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope because we have a hope. And that hope leads to ultimate joy because we recognize what we have. We recognize we have resurrection. We recognize that when he appears, John says, when he appears, we're going to be made like him glorified body, something that we can't even really comprehend. We have a hope. That hope should lead us to joy, right? So let's not have confidence in the flesh. Let's not have confidence in the flesh for our salvation, certainly. Let's not have confidence in the flesh for our daily walking. Let's instead have confidence in Christ for salvation, obviously, but also just as we walk through the day, as we're walking through our life, and let that let that confidence in Him bring a hope which leads to joy, which wells up, wells up in us, and hopefully will overflow and touch all those we, we come in contact with. Let's go to the Lord.